Uh, well, read along with me, if you would, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Paul here says, I therefore, a prisoner of, for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And in fact, we're going to stop at verse 6, though I said 7. Uh, Jennifer and I found recently that we could fairly easily walk from our house to downtown uh, go to Starbucks, get a cup of coffee. That was a new experience for us. It's been a 30-minute drive to uh, the bookstore or to Starbucks uh, in our previous experience in Athena. So we walked downtown the other day. We got a cup of coffee, and I cannot resist a bookstore. And so we walked in the bookstore, and I was looking through some of the books, and I was surprised to find one book there. The title of the book was On Democracy. The author of the book was Kim Jong-un, the North Korean dictator. Now, some of you have quickly picked up on the fact that that is not a true story. But sometimes, the author of a topic may invalidate the message. If you were to come across a book on racial, racial reconciliation by Adolf Hitler, probably would not be a recommended book. Divine Creation by Stephen Hawking. I, I don't know, the list could go on and on and on. But sometimes the source invalidates the message. Let me ask you, if you could sum up the message of the Christian faith in one word, what would it be? Now, I think there are many uh, right answers to that. The, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ can be looked at from multiple ways. We might think of redemption. We might think of glory. We might think that the main message of the Bible is Jesus. All of those would be correct answers. But as I was thinking about this particular message and what it means to be at peace with one another, I think we can see biblically that one way we can describe the overarching message of Scripture is with the word peace. Now, this is a true story. Jennifer and I were at Hobby Lobby the other and it was remarkable how much Christmas decor is already out. And I think probably the main word we see uh, in the Christmas decor is peace. We focused especially on peace at Christmas. It is, uh, and we'll look even more at that in a minute. But, but the main reason I think we do so, the main reason we see that theme being emphasized in Scripture is because the presence of Christ results in peace. In our Bibles, the, at least in the ESV, uh, the word peace occurs 375 times from Genesis to Revelation. In Isaiah chapter 9, Jesus is called the Prince of Peace, and we are told there that his peace will have no end. In Isaiah 26, we're reminded that the one whose mind is fixed on God will be kept in perfect peace. And when the angels, uh, when the sky tears open and the angels present themselves before shepherds, 
at the birth of Jesus, they announce glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. In John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus tells his disciples and us, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. And in John 13, he says to his disciples and again to us, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. There is hardly an example of a New Testament epistle or, or letter to a church that does not contain in it a wish for peace. And as we look at the book of Revelation, we find that when Jesus arrives and reigns on earth for a thousand years, it is a time marked by such peace that a lion can lay down with a lamb, that a child can touch a snake and not be bitten. Only Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And peace will never be achieved in our world by any political power, by any ruler, by any organization. Peace, proper peace, can only be brought by Jesus. And we live in a world that is desperate for peace. But I think the question before us is as the church declares peace, what do our lives declare? Do they validate the message? Or do they invalidate the message? Is peace, according to the Christian church, a title that nobody wants to read? Or is the world looking at us saying, how in the world does that happen? Uh, forget the church, how about your life individually? Does your life validate the message of the gospel of peace? Or do people look at your conduct your actions, your behavior with other Christians, non-Christians, at work, in your family, in the church, and declare peace. I think one of the things we should note, however, in thinking about that, is that peace is directional. If we notice in the, in the epistles, it's always, uh, you, you never hear one of the New Testament authors saying, grace from you and peace. No, it's always grace to you and peace to you. The message of the angels to the shepherds was that, that peace was coming to earth, not the opposite direction. Peace is directional and it flows out from us, not towards us. I think we have a tendency in our own minds, at least I do, I, I don't know about you, I, I have a tendency to think that peace is the responsibility of others to act in peaceable ways, or to make peace when there's conflict, or to give grace when I err or sin. But really, the only way that we'll ever have or see peace is when we understand that peace flows out from us. If, you, if there's a lack of peace in your home, or in your work, or in your church, or in your marriage, or in your family, do you think about and pray for peace in terms of what may come to you? Or do you think about peace and pray for peace in terms of how you might be a peacemaker? See, we often pray for peace and, and we want the direction to be towards us. But maybe the way God gives peace to your home and work and family and church is not by causing someone else to be a peacemaker, but by causing you to be a peacemaker. 
In Matthew chapter 5 and 18, we see two prescriptions for making peace. In Matthew 5, the example is one who is at the altar and realizes that his brother has something against him. What is the responsibility of the one at the altar? Leave your offering and wait for your brother to come to the temple to you and make peace. Of course, we know that's not the case. Jesus says, if you are at the temple and you are presenting your offering and you realize that there is, uh, your brother has something against you, leave your offering and go make peace. Then return and make your offering. And in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go to him and tell him your fault, his fault. You see, the command here, whether you're the one who has committed the offense or the one who has been offended, whether you're the sinner or the one who has been sinned against in God's economy is that you always have the responsibility to go. When somebody does something that creates division and disunity in a relationship, you have a responsibility to go to them. And when you are the one who causes that division and disunity, you still have the responsibility to go. The church is commanded to be at peace. This should not surprise us. One of the times Jesus gets most upset and, and uh, very calculated, not out of control, right, fashions a whip and cleans out the temple is when there is a lack of peace. When the people of God are taking advantage of those who are coming to the temple to worship God. We see David, uh, a king, a warrior king, whose responsibility in God's economy was to clean out the land of its inhabitants and let Israel dwell in the land. But David was a king of war. And David told God, I want to build your house. I want to build the temple. And God says, no, you cannot build the temple. Your son Solomon will build the temple because the temple is to be a place of peace. And so it required a man of peace. Now the temple of God in the new covenant is not a building. It is the people of God and the people of God are to be marked by peace. It is easy to see the command in scripture. It's not so easy to do. Romans 14, 19 says, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. The word for mutual there in the ESV is the same Greek word that we translate one another in other places. It reads something like, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for one another up building. 1 Thessalonians 5.13, be at peace with one another. 2 Corinthians 13.11, live in peace. And I think we would all agree, far easier said than done. If peace were that easy, the church would look very different. If peace were that easy, the world would look very different. And so my goal today is to not give each of us five steps to being a peacemaker. There's incredible resources out there for that. Uh, you can download an app, Relational Wisdom 360, uh, RW360. You can read a book, The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. There are literally tools at your fingertips to help you be a peacemaker and while those things are valuable and good, my goal today is not to give us simple five steps to perfect unity, but what, to, what I want to show us today is seven reasons for being at peace 
with one another. Seven reasons for being at peace with one another. But in order to do that, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. But in order to understand chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, we have to understand the argument of Paul that he's making up to that verse. And so uh, if you'd like to follow along with me, you can turn back to chapter 1, and we're going to fly over very quickly the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 1 through 14 is a section of verses that are on our spiritual riches. I once heard uh, a statement that I think it was about Bill Gates at the time. I'm sure there's others who are far more wealthier now. But, but the, the statement at the time, probably 20 years ago, was that it would have been impossible pretty much for Bill Gates to spend his entire wealth. That if he spent his whole life spending every dollar he could at the rate he was making it, he could never outspend the resources in his life. Well, this first section of Ephesians, verses 1 through 4, the first half of chapter 1, it's like our spiritual bank account. And God shows us what he has placed, what riches he has put in our bank account. And seven that he identifies. Here. So in verse 3, we're told, blessed, that is spoken well of, is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he, here's riches number one, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, here's rich number two, he predestined us. Rich number three, or wealth number three, he adopted us. He predestined us for adoption. That is, he placed us in his family to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us and the beloved. Verse seven, in him we have, riches number four, redemption. Redemption, we have been bought back through or by means of his blood. We have also been granted the forgiveness of our trespasses. That's riches number five, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Here's rich number six, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And in him, verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, here's the seventh deposit that God has made into our spiritual bank accounts, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his grace. You want to know why you can never lose your salvation? It's not because you can't do something so bad that God can't forgive you. We all do horrible things. The the reason we can't lose our salvation isn't because we're such good people. The reason we can't lose our salvation is because God has deposited his Holy Spirit in us, guaranteeing our salvation. And so if we were to pull up the, the statement of our spiritual bank account, we would see seven 
deposits, that God chose us, he predestined us, he adopted us, he redeemed us, he has forgiven us, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, and he has deposited the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing our inheritance. And for what purpose has he done it all? Well, we see that in verses 6 and 12 and 14, where we see that all of this is to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. And so we see that we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What a start to this letter. It's no wonder that in verses 15 through 23, this prayer of Paul is a prayer of thanksgiving. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, he, he shows us our spiritual resuscitation. If chapter 1 is our spiritual riches, chapter 2 is our spiritual resuscitation because we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. This is our spiritual resuscitation. And how is it that we come to life, that we receive all of these blessings? How do we attain and take hold of all that God has done for us? Verse 8, it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. That's it, faith. But, but isn't faith a work? Isn't faith doing something? No, faith is simply this. It is the admission that we can do nothing. It is the admission that we were dead and are now alive in Christ, not because of anything we could do, but because of everything that Christ has done. It is a, a simple surrender, a waving of a white flag. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so in chapter 1, we see our spiritual riches. In chapter 2, we see our spiritual resuscitation. But the rest of chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, is on spiritual unity. Spiritual unity and how we are one in Christ, that Gentiles, formerly distanced from God in, in, in his old covenant economy centered around the temple, the, the, the old, I mean, let me get, gather my thoughts here, uh, the, the Jewish writings surrounding the Old Testament, about the Old Testament, frequently referred to the Gentiles as those who were far off and the Jews as those who were near. Now, this is not a distance thing. This is a spiritual reality. The Gentiles were far off from God relationally. The Jews saw themselves as near. And so Paul picks up on that language, saying, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles called the circumcision, you were far off. But now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And who is Jesus Christ to us as our spiritual riches giver and our spiritual resuscitator? Verse 14, he himself 
is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in us the flesh, and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, that is Jew and Gentile, coming together into one new man known as the church. So, end of verse 15, making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace. To those who were far off, that's the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near. And so we see here in the remainder of chapter 2 that there is spiritual unity. And then in chapter 3, we won't read it, Paul explains how what God has done is taken those two separate people, the Jews and the Gentiles, brought them together into one unique body called the church. That there is no longer Jew nor Gentile in God's economy, that there is just believers and unbelievers. See, we live in a world that's quick to divide. The rich from the poor, the uh, white from the anything else at this point, the male from the female. In God's economy, a New Testament economy in the church, there is only one acceptable division between people. That is saved and not saved. Everything else for us must disappear. It doesn't mean we can't acknowledge those things. It doesn't mean Scripture doesn't acknowledge those things. It just means none of them make us better than anybody else. And so Paul proclaims this unity that God has made in the church out of diverse people. And then we come to chapter 4. And we see, I therefore, that's Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This is a unique word, worthy, here. It was a word that would be used in the marketplace. If, if I were a seller of grain and you came to the marketplace and you asked me for a pound of wheat and I put uh, a weight on one side of a scale and it dropped down, a one-pound weight, and then I put in one pound of wheat until the scales were balanced out. To the degree that that weight matched a pound is the degree to which it was worthy. It was an equitable weight. It actually represented a pound. And so we have this picture for us that Paul paints of these seven massive deposits that God has put into our bank account, choosing, predestination, redemption, adoption, forgiveness, making known the mystery of his will, the Holy Spirit. All of this has been deposited into your spiritual bank account, and the scales drop heavily as God has deposited all of that there. And he says to us then to walk in a manner worthy of all that God has done. Our lives are to be lived with such gravity that they match the output of our lives, the output of our peace, the output of who we are in Christ, how we relate to one another, how we take the gospel to the world around us, is to match the weight of all that God has put in. Oh, that's a big call upon us. How do we do that? I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, 
with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now that's an interesting phrase to me. Unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. See, I think, I think it's, at least in my own thinking, I can only speak for myself, the great tendency is to turn that around. That when there is unity, there will be peace. And Paul says that's incorrect. Peace is the bond that holds together unity. So if you're waiting for people in your church or in your family or in your workplace to be like you in order to have peace, you're just going to be waiting a long time. Paul is telling us here that the church is unified when it operates, when it conducts itself, when it is held together by the bond of peace. Peace is the glue that creates unity, not the other way around. We'll continue to look at that idea. And so, we see here, after uh, all of this, uh, this call to unity, being held together by peace, the next three verses uh, unfold in a trio of trios, or a triad of triads, if you will. There are three one statements in chapter, or verse four, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. Verse 5 also has three, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And verse 6 also has three, but it shifts away from one to all, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so we see this verse as it unfolds in a trio of tree, trios, three threes, um, gives us seven reasons for peace. And we'll move quickly through these. Reason number one for peace is that we are one body. Verse four, there is one body. Not there ought to be, not there should be, there is. It's a statement of fact. It's a simple indicative. There is one body. And the body is a perfect picture for the church. Because a body is not like a, a machine. It is not a mechanism it is an organism. It is not an organization. It is a living being comprised of many parts, diverse parts. The whole point of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 14 and the whole reason for love, verse 13 in between those two in 1 Corinthians is to show us how as a church we might have unity even among diversity. We are to grow together and work together. But the body pictures one single visible unit comprised of many parts. And this is where our American individualism, I did it my way mentality is not helpful for Christianity. James Boyce calls this morbid individualism. Scripture never thinks of believers in terms of who they are primarily as individuals, but who they are primarily as a church. You cannot be healthy apart from commitment, attachment, and involvement in a local church any more than your kidneys can function well outside of your body. To be severed from the body is death. 
It is, it is the, the, our kidneys cannot survive that way, and neither can believers. We are a body bound together. One reason for peace is that God has already made us in one body. Secondly, not only are we one body, but we receive one spirit. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit. Since the church is a body, and that's a filling and fitting analogy, the spirit is our soul. A church without the Holy Spirit is dead. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said that churches without, uh, without the Holy Spirit are like windmills without wind. They are useless until imbued with power from on high. If we are one body, we are given life by one spirit. And every single believer possesses the same spirit. And the third reason for peace is that we enjoy one hope. We enjoy one hope. The rest of verse 4 says, um, just as you were called to one hope, that belongs to your call. This, this hope in view here, it's not a feeling. It's not wishful thinking. It's the substance of that feeling. Compare that back again with chapter 1, verse 14, that it is the Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. It's not wishful thinking that I hope I've done enough to earn the inheritance that God has for me. It is the certainty that He has given me His Spirit, placed me in His body, and someday I will receive the full measure of what He has deposited in the account. Interestingly, the words in this verse for calling and call are the exact same root as the word for church. The word church, ekklesia in the Greek, simply means called out ones. It is, it is in the church together that we enjoy the hope of our calling, and we've been called out of the world into the church. And, and if we think about these things, we can see that all three of these are what the Spirit does I should note that this passage has a distinctly Trinitarian view in mind. The first trio is the work of the Spirit, the second trio is the work of the Son, and the final trio is the character of the Father. But we have been called out of the world into the church. The Spirit does all three of these things. He forms the body, He fills the body, and He guarantees its future. The next reason for peace in the church, uh, the next three reasons for peace in the church pertain to the Son, but number four, we submit to one Lord. We submit to one Lord. Lord is simply another word for ruler. The fact that we call Jesus Lord means that what we are saying is that he is in charge of the church. Paul in particular uses the three, uses three terms for Jesus. His name, Jesus, or the title Christ, which emphasizes his redemptive, his saving work, or the title Lord, which emphasizes his ruling work over the church. And Paul uses those on purpose. And when you read, as you read through your Bible, when Paul changes the order of those, he does so on purpose. If he's emphasizing the, the ruling nature of Christ, he'll call him our Lord and Savior. If he's, if he's emphasizing his saving work, he'll lead with the word Christ. And, and if he wants us to know it, it is Jesus who is the Christ, he'll lead with the term Jesus. But here he gives us the word Lord. 
Simply put, Jesus is our ruler. The world is full of competing idols and rulers, but if you are saved, there is but one ruler in your life. And what does he command of his church but peace? Fourthly, we see that, or I'm sorry, fifthly, we see that our fifth reason for peace is that we possess one faith. Again, verse 5, there is one Lord who is Jesus one faith. There's a debate over this. Is this subjective faith that is my experience of having believed? Or is this objective faith, that is to say the the Christian faith? And, And I think as I study this verse, I don't think it really matters. Because unless your subjective faith is in the objective faith of Jesus Christ as revealed in the scriptures, it is not saving faith. And so whichever is in view here, it doesn't matter. Every single child of God who has been adopted into his family, who has received all of these blessings, has, has had a personal faith, that is a subjective experience of believing in the objective faith of Jesus Christ as our Lord. And so either way, we have a common faith with other believers. We have, sixthly, one baptism. We share one baptism. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. I don't believe spirit baptism is in view here. Paul has already addressed that in the previous verse. I think this is water baptism here. We have been identified as part of God's people with water baptism. The spirit spirit baptism, that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, places us into the universal church, the family of God, but it is water baptism that places us into the local church, the people of God. God has always given two signs associated with the covenant, an instantaneous sign and an ongoing sign. Probably the first covenant we see enacted by God is the covenant of marriage. And the instantaneous sign is a marriage ceremony. The ongoing sign is a sexual union. In the Old Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant with the people of God in Israel, the immediate sign was circumcision, the ongoing sign was sacrifice. And in the New Covenant, he's done the same for us. He's given us the immediate sign of baptism and the ongoing sign of communion. And so we all participate in this one baptism which declares that the one is part of the many. I think it's the best way to understand baptism and communion. Communion, which we will participate here in shortly, communion is the statement that the many are one. And baptism is the statement that the one belongs to the many. And so we've all participated in this baptism. We've all shared the sign of the covenant. We are all in the family of God. Therefore, the baptized are those who, working backwards, have one faith, in one Lord, having one hope, uh, having been received by one spirit, and are part of the body. The spirit puts us in the body and dwells in us and secures our hope. The son rules over us, is the object of our faith, and whose family into which we are baptized when we become believers. And now for the work of the Father, and this is reason number seven, we worship one God and Father. Verse six, there is one God and Father of all, and he is over all and through all and in all. Up to here, 
Paul has emphasized the work of the Spirit and the work of the Son, but he ceases to emphasize the work of God and here focuses on the character of God. Here the Father stands alone, not least in its importance, but Paul has been working from the bottom to the top. And he tells us in this trio of alls that God is over all and through all and in all. This statement over all refers to God's transcendent sovereignty. As R.C. Sproul put it, there is not one rogue electron in the universe. God controls it all. He is also through all, and that is, that is a reference to his providential authority. Not only is God ruling over all things sovereignly, but he is providentially working all things out. Even COVID-19, even your suffering even quarantine, even sickness, even death. It is not just the joyous things that God sovereignly oversees. It is the hard things as well. Job said, we accept good from God's hand. Why should we not accept evil? The word in Hebrew for evil is also the word for bad. And so he's not, Job is not accusing God of being evil, but Job has a perspective that even in his sufferings, God is providentially in charge. God is never caught off guard. He is never surprised. And he uses suffering both for his glory and our good. Not only is he over all, that is he is sovereign. Not only is he through all, that is he is omnipotent. He is in all, that is his imminent present. He is omni, or imminent presence. He is omnipresent. And so in lockdown, sickness, pain, sadness, grief, joy, delight, and everything in between, God is present with us. See, most of us know how to make peace. What we usually simply need is the motivation to do it. The motivation to go to that person and say, I wronged you, will you forgive me? Or you wronged me, I have already forgiven you, but we need to be reconciled. What is the motive for this unity, this peace in the church? It is the Trinity. If you need help making peace, if you have relationships that you think are, are just uh, not right and scary, Come talk to me. Talk to one of the elders. We don't have all the answers, but we'll figure it out together. We would love to help you make peace. But the church is to be at peace with one another. The world, no matter what it thinks of our message, ought to see the title of the book, Peace, by the Church of Jesus, as the most understandable title ever. But if the, church, if the world looks at us and says, peace by the people of Jesus, that just makes no sense to me. Then something is off. Something is wrong. Do our relationships and our lives proclaim the message of the gospel of peace? Thank God that even though we get it wrong sometimes, there is grace there's not only grace to forgive the wrongs of the past, but to enable us to get it right in the future. I'm going to leave us with this quote from Thomas Watson, great Puritan writer. He said this, God the Son is called the Prince of Peace. He came into the world with a song of peace. On earth, 
peace. He went out of the world with a legacy of peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Christ's earnest prayer was for peace. He prayed that his people might be one. Christ not only prayed for peace, but he bled for peace, having made peace through the blood of his cross. He died not only to make peace between God and man, but between man and man. Christ suffered on the cross that he might cement Christians together with his blood. As he prayed for peace, so he paid for peace. Jesus, we thank you that you have paid for our peace. It is not something we must earn. It is not something we must fabricate. It is something for which you both prayed and paid. And Father, we thank you that you have given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies that we might be eager for unity in the bond of peace. Lord, make us peacemakers. Let us enjoy the delightful fruit of peace in the church and in our homes and our workplaces. Lord, as we pray for peace, let us see that it is not so much uh, peace receivers that you want to make us, but peace givers. And may we be blessed for being peacemakers. Father, let this place let these people, let our, be, our relationships be marked and defined by such peace that when the world wants to know how to have peace, they come to us. Lord, let us not be at war and fighting with one another and so concerned with getting what we think we deserve or what we ought to have that we fail to see that the, wor the, the word we are to take to the world around us is that of peace. And Lord, now as we move together to a time of participating in, in the supper, in the communion of the saints with you, our Savior, may we understand what a unifying and bonding and, and peacemaking act this is among us. Lord, may it be a sign of our covenant, not only to you, but with each other. And we ask it in Jesus' name.